Uh, before we, we jam into John 8 right now, I wanted to share something with you. This dialogue happened uh, not two weeks ago yesterday. Uh, so it was on a Saturday night. Uh, my friend Dennis, uh, many of you know Dennis O'Hare, him and his, uh, his wife and now his daughter and her kids, they attend here. Uh, he texted me on uh, Saturday evening. It was the week that we had baptisms. He, uh, he sent me this message. He said, uh, hey, buddy, is it too late to do a dedication for Sophia, their granddaughter, who was just born about a month ago, a little over a month ago? Uh, and I said, uh, yeah, we can definitely do it. Tomorrow's totally fine. Or we can wait until next week if you think there's some family or someone else who might want to be there but can't make it tomorrow. Because short notice, right? Service is in like 12 hours. And this is his response. He said, tomorrow would be good if that's okay. Our church is our family. Um, you may think, yeah, I'm not really significant. I'm just a person in the world. I just happen to go to this church. Uh, sounds like you matter to Dennis. Sounds like you matter. Sounds like the fact that you're part of this, uh, this group, this church family, sounds like that's a big deal to somebody. If you were to think, do this for me, of, of who have been maybe the two or three most significant influencers or mentors in your life, uh, just throughout the course of your life, it doesn't have to be in any particular area, job, education, sports, uh, just in your childhood, it could, could be anything. You just kind of think of who those people are. The statistical research indicates that the overwhelming majority of people would say the most influential mentors in their life are family members and close friends. Now, there's some other people on the list a little farther down, farther down that you might expect, like teachers coaches, pastors, uh, you'd be glad to know that the people at the bottom of the list that almost no one is listening to is celebrities and sports stars. Uh, you might be glad to know that. So for all the buzz about athletes being role models, uh, turns out not that many people are actually listening to them. And I think we can all agree, whew, that's a load off. Uh, but uh, the research indicates that the most important influencers in almost everyone's life are family members and close friends. What does that mean? Uh, if you have any family members or any friends, uh, which you all do, we all came from somewhere, uh, you matter to somebody. You have influence on someone. You're their leader. That, that might be a scary thought to you, but, but someone's looking at you to figure out what to do and what not to do. You matter to someone. Your influence matters. Now, that's, that's a really great deal. The good news is you have influence. You can make a difference. You can and do make other people's lives better. That's, that's the really great news. I know, you're thinking to yourself, that's just pastor speak. You're telling me I matter. Maybe it is pastor speak, but the research indicates that it's actually the truth. You matter. Your life matters. You have influence. Uh, the other day, I don't remember what Brandy said to me. I don't remember what it was she said, but I turned to her in response and said, you sounded exactly like your mom when you said that because you have influence. Your life matters. Now, the challenge is, as we're leading other people, leading them somewhere that they actually want to end up, right? That's, that's the challenging part, depositing good things in their life, being someone that they'll actually benefit from knowing. And I want to just assure you of something. Just by being here, just by being part of what's happening, we're going we're gonna to open God's word. Uh, you're actually building up a storage of wisdom, for your own life, you're building a firmer foundation for your own life, but also you're building up a bank to be able to deposit into other people's lives just by being here. Uh, Jesus told this story, uh, both Matthew and Luke record it, 
But in Matthew 7, uh, it's, it's more of an illustration than a story. Matthew 7, verse 24, Jesus said, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is wise. Like a person who built their house on solid rock. The rain came down in torrents, and the floodwaters rose, and the wind beat against that house, but it would not fall, because it was built on bedrock. The Greek word is actually bedrock. That house would not fall. No matter what beat against it, it would not fall because it was built on bedrock. Now, I think that by being here and jumping into God's word and building our lives on what Jesus has to say with us, you're building a life that will be able to look at the storms when they come, and by the way, they will, and say, bring it on. I want to be a bring it on person. I don't want to be a fearful person. I want to be able to say to the storm, you know what? Bring it on. This house, it's built on the rock. And I think that's true of this house. That's what we're doing as a family today, building it on the rock. So we're going to be in John 8, and you won't be super surprised to know this if you've been following along uh, throughout our, uh, our series in John, but Jesus is going to have some, you know, some confrontation with some really religious sort of pious people. That happens a lot. Uh, and so rather than get really bogged down into their dialogue, uh, I wanna, so we're going to do kind of a high-level flyover, beginning in verse 12. This is what Jesus says to the group of people. He says, I am the light of the world. Uh, that's brilliant imagery. Now, even if you're not spiritual in any way, you, maybe you're, you know, if you were like a politician or someone who spoke in public, you would hear that and go, man, that's really good rhetoric. That was well done. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, that's a big statement. There are some pretty significant implications right there. What does it mean to be the light of the world? What, is, what does he mean by that? Well, there's, there's some, uh, some analogous places in the Bible that we might draw from. How about the very first verse of the Bible, or the first four verses specifically? Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Now, here's a tough question. Uh, Garrett, you just had a birthday. You're practically a full-grown man right here, so I'm going to ask you this question. Uh, what was happening before there was light? Darkness. Yeah, not much, right? The earth was formless and void. Uh, there's darkness. There's no light. I mean, formless and void is about as nothing going on as you could possibly get. That's what was happening before there was light. God's first course of action to bring everything into existence, to bring order into existence, was to say, let there be light. So when Jesus says, I am the light, that might be a significant thing. God's first course of action in bringing order and meaning was to say, let, there's, let there be light. Have you fast forward, uh, maybe about halfway through the biblical narrative, kind of in the middle of the Bible, you find a guy named Isaiah. Isaiah was one of several prophets. He lived at a time when uh, the primary way God would speak to people was through a prophet. He would give them a word, uh, and they would share it with the people. Now, uh, as I've said before, this is different than like today when someone calls themselves a prophet, right? Because I could say, like, I'm a prophet, and from now on, all pizza everywhere is going to be free on Mondays. 
And then when tomorrow comes and that doesn't happen, you guys all think, yeah, that guy was an idiot, and then you just pay for the pizza. Back then, if you said that, the Lord said, oh, pizza is going to be free on Mondays, and it didn't happen, they would literally drag you out of the city and pummel you to death with rocks because you just claim to be from God and you're obviously not. Uh, so when the prophets back then would say they had a word from the Lord, it was serious business. They didn't mess around with that. This is what Isaiah said. Uh, he lived about a little over 600 years before Jesus, and he's significant because he talked a lot in specific terms about the coming Messiah, about Jesus. This is what he said in Isaiah 9:2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now, that's pretty deep stuff, right? Especially if you lived back then, you know, we can... We have like foresight or, or hindsight. We, we can see the life of Jesus and know what he's talking about, but that was probably a real head scratcher for them. But I think we can all agree, if you're walking around in darkness, light is good. Right? That's not very profound. That's, that's pretty basic. If you live in the land of deep darkness and all of a sudden there's a dawn, you're going to celebrate. Light is good. Uh, has anybody ever spent a winter in like Alaska or Canada where the sun goes down and doesn't come up again for several weeks? Um, you, you have. Okay. I have not, but I know some people who have. And uh, you can maybe vouch for this if you've, uh, if you've lived out there. You know what happens when the sun doesn't come up for weeks on end? Every bad thing you can possibly think of. Uh, violence, crime, depression, things like this all go on the rise. Uh, it's statistically pretty easy to research. Jump online, find out. Every bad thing you can think of happens when there's no light. Well, why is that? I think there's an easy answer. Because you need the light. Psychologically, emotionally, Physically, what would happen if there was no light? Everything would die. That's what would happen. So it's both metaphoric when Jesus says, I'm the light, but it's also very material. It's a necessity. We need the light. So I want to give you three reasons why Jesus uses this word picture of the light. If you're taking notes, you might want to write these three down. I think, personally, I think they're all really significant, but three reasons why Jesus uses this light word picture. Oh, yeah, you want to tap your toe. To me, I know for some people that's like a distraction. To me, that's the sound of fun. Uh, because I know, you know, my kids, you guys used to be down there. We still have one little guy down there. They love it. So, uh, so for me, that's just the sound of fun happening. Hopefully that's not a distraction for you. Uh, the first reason I think Jesus uses the word picture, light, I am the light, is pretty simple. Because we need the light to survive. You cannot physically or spiritually survive without light. What will happen to your emotional state, your, your mental state, uh, your physical state, if light just no longer existed? It would wilt. Same happens spiritually. Uh, we need the light to survive. The second is, uh, I think also obvious, we need the light because we can't see clearly without it. Without it. None, of us, none of us can see that the things around us don't make sense without the clarity that light brings. And the third reason, uh, which is pretty cool, totally different than the first two, but it's because the darkness cannot defeat the light, ever. You could never bring a light into a dark room and have the darkness push back and say, not today. That's never going to happen. The darkness can never, under any circumstances, overcome the light. Light always expels it. So a question you might ask is, where in your world is there darkness that needs to have a light shine? Uh, my guess is uh, you probably don't have to think very long to, to find out, right? We all, uh, we all have different struggles. Maybe we are in a workplace where there's just a really sort of negative environment. That might be an example. 
Uh, there's probably all kinds of places where we need the light to shine in the darkness. Uh, we got some students in here. Uh, would it be fair to say that in your schools there's some dark things happening? You agree? You're on board? Okay, I'm getting some, I'm getting some affirmative head nods. Uh, that's good. For, for these reasons and a whole bunch of others, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and we're going to want to pay attention to that. That's going to have significant implications for us. So Jesus makes this claim, and you've got to understand that for them, for the original audience, for the Jews, this contrast of good versus evil, light versus darkness, this is part of their cultural narrative. Uh, you know, it's, it's not the same for us, but you've got to remember, they frame all of their value around the fact that they're Jewish. It's part of their cultural narrative, light versus darkness. So for them, uh, this is really significant when Jesus says, I'm the light. Now, in my own just, you know, sort of self-righteousness, I sometimes wonder, are you guys idiots? Because people like Isaiah, they told you exactly what would happen when the Messiah showed up, and then he did, and he's right there in front of you and you don't see it. Okay, have you ever had that thought, like, how can you miss this? Okay. I realize it's not that simple. I don't actually think they're idiots. If I was there, there's a reasonable chance I would have probably been in the same position as them. So I reserve judgment, but sometimes I do wonder, like, how do you not see this? Right? Like when someone has been, you know, uh, blind for 40 years and he's like, hey, why don't you go ahead and see again? And they do. I might be thinking, okay, what's going on here? Okay. So apparently I do have some judgment. Uh, (laughs) Sometimes I wonder how they missed it. And, uh, you know, this ensuing interaction that Jesus has, I think, gives us an insight into how it is that people miss the light, how we can accidentally remain in the darkness. So a couple of reasons. Uh, They might be worth writing down. The first one is this. Sometimes people miss the darkness. Sometimes people walk in the darkness. They remain in it because they think they are the light. Um, have you, ever, have you ever looked at someone else and whether overtly or, uh, you know, just sort of implicitly thought, I'm better than them? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but let's just say we've all done that. Uh, sometimes we just, we just view ourselves as like morally superior to someone else. We see something they do, and yeah, it might be really offensive, and we think, I'd never do anything like that. At least not on the outside, just in my heart. I'd, I'd never do anything like that. So I'll just give you an example. Um, this is an easy one because it doesn't poke at anyone personally. I try to make a point to watch the State of the Union address every year. I don't know if that's something you enjoy uh, or not, but I try to, I try to carve out the time to, to watch that. And I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, uh, but it's, it's because it's equal parts like inspiring and political, but also like kind of embarrassing and ridiculous at the same time. Like everybody's looking around like, okay, they're standing. Do I stand now? Should we, do we clap for that? Is it okay? Okay, the people on the other side of that line, they're sitting, so I should probably stand. And then like up in the balcony, uh, hello, howdy to the balcony up there, by the way. You got the first lady sitting up over there with like the hero of the day that the president brought in so that he could... Yeah, sort of call attention to what they did, but mostly like use them as a pawn for, you, you know what I'm saying. So like it just gets sort of ridiculous, but it's kind of interesting. Now, in my lifetime, there have been some, uh, a broad range of orators in the Oval Office. Some of them have been incredibly inspiring. I don't really remember Ronald Reagan, but I've seen his speeches. He was amazing. Uh, you know, whether you liked him or not, uh, Barack Obama, loved him or hate him, whatever your political view is, uh, he was a really skilled orator. Uh, There have been some that actually weren't that interesting, uh, that had trouble with complete sentences and things like that. 
But one thing you will invariably hear, no matter who's up there, you will hear some variation of this expression. America stands as the last beacon of hope to the world. And we go uh, you know, down the list of how we're going to bring back jobs, and our economy's going to boom, and we're going to make the world safe for democracy, and uh, we're going to practice tolerance, and all these things that are virtuous and good. I'm in favor of jobs. We should definitely have jobs. We should definitely have a strong economy. We should definitely do all of those things. Not a political statement at all. Uh, but I think history has told us, as societies have risen and fallen, that those things aren't the light of the world. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Follow, follow me. Sometimes we as a society can miss the light because we, we sort of feel like we are the light. You know what I mean? We can do that in mass and we can do that personally. Now, Jesus just said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And this is what the next verse says. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. And Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I'm going. So Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And some guy jumps up and says, no, you're not. You can't give your own testimony. Uh, man, I would just imagine it probably got pretty awkward right there in the, in the uh, temple. But Jesus responds really confidently. Because you can imagine, like, if you're the son of God and someone challenges your viewpoint, like, are you really, like, threatened that someone said, no, you're not? You're probably not that threatened. Jesus has a good explanation. He says, my testimony is valid because I know who I am. You have no idea who I am because you're blinded by your self-righteousness. And even though I'm telling you who I am and where I came from, you, you won't hear it because you think you're the light. You're so committed to being right. That's what Jesus tells him. And this sort of points to the underlying problem that we see over and over again between Jesus and the really religious people is that they think they are the beacon of hope to the world. If we can just get everybody to believe what we believe and do what we do, then, uh, then you know, the world will be a better place and they'll see that our way is the superior way. And Jesus is saying, nope, I'm the light of the world. Uh, isn't that a lot easier? Isn't it easier to just point people toward Jesus as the, the light of the world than to convince them that you're the light of the world? Jesus says, you know what? Just point them, just point them toward me. The world is full of darkness, and I'm trying to throw you a lifeline. Just point them towards me. So here's the phenomenal news in this conversation. Just jumping up to verse 31, it says this. To the Jews who had believed in Jesus. Now, if you're a Christian, these are the people who are following him, right? They believe in Jesus. They're Christians too. They happen to be Jewish. Um, but if you're a Christian, this is you. To the people who believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are truly my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth is, you don't have to be a perfect person. You don't have to be super mom like Jess talked about. You don't have to be hero dad. You don't have to be, uh, you know, ultimately righteous and perfect. You don't have to be that. You just have to hold on to the rope that Jesus is trying to throw you. I'm throwing you a lifeline. Just, just hold on to it. But they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Well, here we go again. We're Abraham's descendants. We're the good people. We're the ones that other people want to be like, not slaves. They're still thinking they're right. And Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. 
Uh, I'd have you raise your hands, but I don't think we need to raise our hands on this one. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now get this. Here's the good news. A slave or a person who works for the family has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son has set you free, you are free indeed. Now we kind of get bogged down because our picture of slavery is like 19th century American slavery. Uh, in their context, it was probably more like uh, uh, contractual employment, if you will. Uh, regardless, the son is part of the family forever. It can't be revoked. The person who works for the family, that's an entirely different situation. Their relationship is transactional. I do this for you, you compensate me this way. But the son or daughter, the child of the family, is a part of the family forever. And Jesus' point is, this is not transactional. You're in the family because of me. If the son has set you free, you're free indeed. And if, if you have a particularly religious mindset where faith is kind of about like moral scorekeeping, uh, you know, I, if I do this, God will bless me. If I do that, God will definitely not bless me. Uh, this might not make sense. But Jesus is saying, there is no score. I am the light. Just hold on to the rope. And as much as people stay in darkness because they think they are the light, uh, sometimes they just choose darkness. Now, we don't overtly choose darkness. We don't say, hey, I'm just going to... I think I'm going to have an evil day today. You know, I just, just feel like I could use a little darkness in my life. Nobody says that. Uh, but we make decisions that keep us there. Uh, I had this funny experience a couple weeks ago. I took my boys to see uh, the Han Solo movie. I'm not really a sci-fi guy. I'm not really even a moviegoer. But if you can't get on board with Star Wars, I mean, come on, right? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, if you, I, I actually, as a parent, I have always used Star Wars as an illustration of sort of like the grander scheme of what's happening in human existence. If you were to go ask my youngest son, what is Star Wars about? He won't name any characters. He won't tell you the storyline. He will say, good versus evil. Uh, you know, you could think of a whole bunch of different stories. One of the most famous ones is Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit. Uh, it's, it's the story of good versus evil. Uh, Tolkien, who wrote, who wrote The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, he actually explained his secret sauce a little later on in life. He said, I just, even though there's these fantastic characters and scenes, he said, I just write about good versus evil. Everyone in every culture throughout history loves the story of good versus evil because it's the story of humanity. Uh, it's, it's who we are. It's the story that we've always lived in from the beginning. So uh, if you wonder what his secret was, now you too can go out and write bestsellers. Uh, but I took, I took my boys to see Han Solo, and uh, we went to the Garland. Anybody been to the Garland recently? All right. Did you, uh, did you get a tetanus shot? And, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, she's getting a little run down. I'm not going to lie. Uh, but, uh, but if you've been in there, you know, it's not like one of those uh, new movie theaters where there's like 180 theaters in one building. It's just one screen. It's a massive theater. I have no idea how many seats are in there, but it's huge. And when you leave, uh, you can go back the way you came, but you, you actually walk down toward the front and go out the side doors right into the parking lot, right? A lot of you have been there before. And uh, so we were there. It was on a Saturday afternoon, and uh, we had been sitting in there for like two and a half hours in the darkness. And when we opened the door to the parking lot, oh, my gosh, it just came at you all at once. Like, I wanted to turn around and go back in because it was so bright outside. Well, what happened? We stayed in the darkness long enough to get used to it, right? This is what happens. You stay in the dark long enough, stay in the wrong environment long enough, and it becomes your normal. So an example might be, uh, we got some students in the room. You guys go to school, and you nodded your head and said, yeah, there's some dark stuff going on there. 
Uh, there's kids at your school, even at their young age, who are, say, dabbling with alcohol. Some of them will stay in that environment long enough that they will eventually be alcoholics, and it will destroy their lives. Statistics say that's going to happen. How does that happen? None of them are thinking, I want to be an alcoholic and destroy my life. No one's thinking that. But if you stay in the darkness long enough, it becomes normal. So they might be involved in all kinds of things, alcohol, drugs, sexually active, all these things that are going to reap destruction in their life. But if you stay in the darkness long enough, it becomes your normal. We eventually acclimate to it. In verse 42, last, uh, last section, Jesus says to this group of people, these religious leaders, he says, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own, but God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? It's a rhetorical question because he's going to answer for them. Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm, if I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. They'd been in the lie so long, they couldn't hear the truth when it came right to them. Because that's what happens. They couldn't even accept the help when it was offered to them. So if any of you at any age have ever wondered, why did my parents say, choose your friends wisely? This is why. Because if you stay in the wrong environment long enough, it will become your normal. You eventually can't get out. If you, if you ignore God long enough, eventually you won't be able to hear him anymore. Okay, so what's all this got to do with me? Uh, I mean, you're here or you're listening online, so obviously you're seeking God out on some level. Uh, so, so what's all this going to, you know, how are you going to put this to work in your own life? Remember the first verse. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And then he made a promise. His promise was, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What does that mean? The light of life. I don't know what that means. I know that I want it. It sounds good. It sounds like something I might like to have, but what's that mean? There's this really old document. It was written in the 1600s called the Westminster Catechism. Uh, and basically, the Westminster Catechism was sort of a compilation of kind of foundational Christian beliefs, things that we generally agree on. And it's basically been sort of a waypoint or like a north star for the church over the last 400 years. And it's kind of cool because it's written in like question and answer format. So one of the questions, in fact, the first question is, what is man's chief end? Or in, you could tell it was written in the 1600s. Uh, what is the chief end of man? Well, you might say, what is man's highest purpose? Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? Why did God create people in the first place? Is basically what that question is asking. And the response is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. A theologian named John Piper says it this way. He says, man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. This is why God created in the first place. It's not because he was lonely that's not because he needed to hang out with us. God's self-sufficient. But our ultimate purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy by enjoying him both now and in eternity. Now, there's some really significant implications to this. If, if this is what it looks like to have the light of life, to 
enjoy God, to glorify him by enjoying his presence now and forever. Um, there's, a, there's a million and one implications. Like, how about this one? You don't have to look in the mirror and wish you saw something else because you were skillfully and carefully made by a creator. How about that for an implication? You don't have to go to a job that seems meaningless and punch the clock and think, I'm just wasting my life here because God appointed the time and the place that you would live. And you may have plans in your life, but Proverbs tells us that God orders your steps. Apparently, this is where God wanted you or he would have sent somebody else. You can know that you have a purpose for being there. You don't have to look out in your driveway if you own a car and think, man, I wish I had a better car. You know what you get to think? Praise God that I have a car. Did you know that less than one out of 11 people in the world have a car? Uh, Not to mention that 100 years ago they didn't exist, and so billions of people before that didn't have one. You can celebrate what you do have. You don't have to be discouraged when times are tough and think, this is it for me. This is as good as it's going to get. You know what? The truth is, if you're following Christ, uh, life may be really wonderful for you, but this is actually as bad as it's ever going to get, because someday you're going to be with him in eternity. He's made provision for you. So even if things are really good, there's still nowhere to go, to go but up. You don't ever have to be hopeless. You don't ever have to wonder, how am I going to withstand this storm? Because your life is built on the rock. We don't have to live in fear. And lastly, you don't have to ever give up and think, this is all I'm ever going to be. This is as good as it gets. There's nothing more for me. Because you know that Jesus is going to light the way. I don't know how I'm going to get through this situation, but Jesus is the light of the world. He's going to show me through it. So whatever it is that you care about, whatever it is that you're passionate about, whatever it is that you're worried about, whatever it is that you're afraid of, whatever the things that consume the, the, the bulk of your time and attention, Jesus is the light. He is the way through that. All you have to do is to hold the rope. He wants to throw you a lifeline. I am the light. You know, the religious people had all these rules. Do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. If I do this, God will bless me. But if I accidentally do this, then God will punish me for that. Jesus is just saying, you know what? Just hold on to the rope. I know the way. Let me pray for you. God, thank you that you have shined a light on the very reason for our existence, to glorify you, to enjoy you forever, not to be the objects of your wrath, but to be the objects of your mercy and your love. So God, I pray you'd help us today as we walk out through that door to live with that knowledge, to live like people who know God is for me, and I don't know the way through this, but I know the one who does. I know that he understands what's on the other side. I pray you'd help us to live like people who believe that our future is secure in you. I pray you'd teach us how to trust you and to be filled with joy in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.